Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today on Heritage Events Live. My name is Maya Clark, and I'm a researcher in Heritage's Center for National Defense, focusing on defense industrial base issues. I'd like to welcome everyone to our event today, Building Resilience, the Defense Industrial Base in an Era of Great Power Competition. When we think about what the country needs to win wars, we often jump straight into considering the tanks, planes, and ships that would be required in a given conflict. These items are important, but just as important is the defense industrial base that supports them. The vast ecosystem of prime contractors, mid-tier subcontractors, and lower-tier suppliers that make items necessary for the national defense. To navigate this complex ecosystem, there is no more qualified expert than Dr. McGinn, our guest today, and the author of an essay on this topic in Heritage's 2021 Index of U.S. Military Strength. Dr. McGinn is the Executive Director of the Center for Government Contracting in the School of Business at George Mason University, a first-of-its-kind university center for research and education related to the government contracting industry. Before joining George Mason, Dr. McGinn served as a senior career official in the Office of Manufacturing and Industrial-Based Policy in the Department of Defense leading efforts to analyze the capabilities and overall health of the defense industrial base. Dr. McGinn also has a decade of experience on the industry side of things in senior roles at McGinn Defense Consulting, Deloitte Consulting, Kinetic North America, and Northrop Grumman. Dr. McGinn holds his MA, MS, and PhD degrees from Georgetown University and is a graduate of the United States Military Academy at West Point. And with that, I now invite Dr. McGinn to join me on screen and provide some remarks to kick off our conversation today. Hi, Maya. Thanks very much for the kind introduction. And I want to thank Heritage, specifically Dakota Wood, the editor of the uh, Index, for inviting me to do uh, to write this essay. And uh, it was a great opportunity for me, a sort of a summation of the last six, seven years that I've been working in industrial-based issues to really, um, in government and out of government, to, to really come to some Come to grips with it intellectually. Uh, and I want to thank you, the audience, all the participants for your participation today and in advance for your questions. Um, I look forward to uh, the discussion after I wanted to give you a brief overview of, of the paper. Um, so the industrial base, as Maya talks about, is, is critical uh, and it's received a lot of attention in recent years over the last several administrations. And really COVID put a really bright spotlight on our overall industrial base. So now's a really good time to take stock. Uh, how are we faring? How's the industrial base doing? And um, most importantly, how, um, how, how well is it postured for a great power conflict with China or Russia? So to do this, um, I, I looked at the industrial base in really three lenses or three dimensions. First of all is the question of capability. Are we building the right stuff? Um, and are, are, that, um, are we building the right things for the challenges, security challenges facing us today? Um, secondly, do, are we building enough um, uh, the capacity? 
So uh, do we have the capacity we need uh, to, um, to, um, to, uh, to, to, for that uh, great power competition? And the third is really a function of the other two is resilience. So how much capability capacity you have really leads to how resilient you are. Are, you able to are we able to surge our industrial base and maintain it in the event of uh, significant attrition and initial conflicts, um, uh, initial engagements uh, during great power conflict? So that's the way I approached this, and I looked, um, I went back in history, I started um, in the 20th century through today, I looked at uh, globalization's efforts in World War I, World War II, the Cold War, the great, the great uh, the global war on terrorism, as well as the COVID response. And interestingly, I, ca I came out with a number of conclusions. Um, uh, two things struck me as very, very reassuring about our defense industrial base. Uh, first is that, um, we have the basic authorities, uh, regulations, and tools we need to, um, to for that resilient industrial base. Uh, I, and COVID really shows this sharply. The, uh, the amount of um, uh, equipment and services that was able to be procured uh, in a rapid fashion to respond to this global crisis was really breathtaking. Over 400 billion, excuse me, $40 billion of um, um, items were procured by the US government in, in six months uh, under, under uh, COVID. Now, uh, global, uh, global conflict is not the same as a pandemic response. There, there is more uh, multifaceted um, production has to be done in terms of um, complex systems to replace them. But the basic authorities such as the Defense Production Act the contracting structures can really be flexible and really address uh, what we need to do. Uh, the second thing that made uh, hearten me was the, uh, the the way that our industrial base has expanded in recent years. There's been concerted efforts to uh, build our industrial base. Um, you know, you know, not sliding, of course, the traditional defense contractors that Maya outlined, those primes, mid-tier, and small suppliers, but bringing in new commercial technology. Uh, and that effort has um, accelerated. It even uh, happened during COVID. So the the uh, second the 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 negative side of, of my analysis really was that we've got still significant gaps uh, and weaknesses that remain. Um, these have been identified in numerous years, um, but the uh, to put a point on it, I mean there are several uh, industrial-based sectors, uh, ground vehicles ships, radars, you know, where we're relying on one or two major contractors to do um, um, all of the, uh, our major integration and work. And we have, a, you know, a, a number of, sub, um, of small businesses that can be uh, single points of failure. So there, there is a need to, to strengthen how we do that to build capacity. Um, and it's, it's a very different situation from that in World War II. World War II, we had, we had Northrop aircraft, Grumman aircraft, Curtis Wright, um, uh, Douglas Aircraft, and Boeing, uh, lots of, and more, uh, building fire jets and bombers for use during in the various theaters. We're not going to get that today. We can't do all of that, um, but we, we need to do better. So in, in that end, I make a, a, a set of recommendations at the end in terms of uh, capability, capacity, and resilience. In terms of capability, um, what I think we need to do are uh, three things. One is that we need to uh, increase efforts to bring in um, new um, technology, because a lot of the threats facing us today, hypersonics, artificial intelligence, autonomy, robotics, and the like, are areas that are heavily commercial, um, and we need the best minds um, in and out of government to address them. 
Um, so, you know, keep encouraging that, keep um, creating opportunities to do that because right now it's not on the scale where it needs to be. Uh, a related front, we need to learn from the COVID uh, contracting response and really kind of maximize the ability to reach a gov for government industry to work together on a rapid basis. So we're, and this can, the system can do that. Um, it's not, uh, uh, but we need to do, um, we need to really build off that. Um, and the third point is, uh, on uh, that is we really have to, uh, on the capability side, get out of the China business. And what, by that, I mean, there are a number of areas where mercantilist Chinese policies have led us to be in sole or single source positions uh, in areas way down the supply chain, um, rare earth metals, um, rare earth processing, uh, specialty chemicals, small UAVs, and the like, um, and microelectronics to a degree. So there have been a number of efforts um, in the past several years to do that, but we need to accelerate them, and that needs to be, we put a stake in that um, situation. In terms of capacity, um, there, there's, um, I think that we need to um, increase how we do prototypes in terms of meaningful efforts in major programs so that we're, uh, we're allowing more than just one or two companies to build uh, prototypes for um, eventual downselect. This keeps the industrial base warm, uh, and uh, build skills that can be used down the road. Um, and another way to keep us keep the, the industrial base warm is you know developing agreements in advance. Um, the Defense Protection Act Title VII has the ability to do voluntary agreements between government and industry on specific areas. It would be great to do that um, in the area of um, uh, in the area of a great power competition. Uh, and then also on the uh, we need to um, increase our visibility in supply chains. Uh, particularly supply chain illumination, because the the ability to see up and down supply chains are a real weakness that we have. Uh, and lastly, is in terms of stockpiling, we we need to uh, be more aggressive and active in how we what and how we stockpile uh, for for great power competition. And that, and that leads to my final two points on resilience. Uh, the first of which is the uh, the point of planning. So planning is not is not everything. In fact, you know the old adage that uh, you know, no plan survives the first moment of conflict is is true, but we we have to better align our authorities and our, our regulations so that we are locked and loaded so there's not the hiccups at the front. And so that is aligning DPA authorities, um, you know, setting up the executive orders so that we can respond as needed. And the second point is we got we have to remember that the the, the industrial base is actually ex, an extended part of the battlefield. Um, and that is um, really come through in, in the area of cybersecurity. Um, so intellectual property theft, security lapses are a real challenge, and that's why it's important to do things such as cybersecurity um, um, maturation model certification or CMMC and other activities. So those are some of the, the recommendations and some of the findings from our, our, my essay, but I really look forward to your questions, and so I'll turn it back to Maya. Thank you, Dr. McGinn. Those are all really Great points to start off our conversation. I want to remind the audience now uh, that you can go ahead and submit your questions through the questions box in the GoToWebinar application. And please feel free to include your name and affiliation if you would like me to state that when I ask your question. Um, but while we're waiting for audience questions, I'll go ahead and ask a few of my own. Uh, so I guess I'll start off by saying that, you know, in your essay, you really discuss how uh, trends in the modern economy, uh, trends towards a global economy, have you know, delivered these huge economic benefits to the United States. They've allowed us the prosperity that we enjoy today, 
but some of them would be problematic during war. And I know uh, some of these that come to mind are just-in-time manufacturing, global supply chain optimization. Uh, where exactly do you see these trends impacting the defense industry? And how should we weigh the economic benefits of these trends against the problems they might create for our national defense? It's a, it's a great question. And I think one of the strengths of our uh, economic system is that, that, that dynamism and that global connectivity has been really important uh, uh, both in our economy and over, over, overseas. Um, and interestingly, in the defense industrial base, most of the major systems, you know, the planes, uh, the radars, and the like, they're built, I mean, overwhelmingly out of U.S. Um, uh, US manufacturing. So we already have, it's one of the strongest manufacturing sectors there is. And those um, parts that are not U.S. are generally from close to U allies, the Brits or the Australians or Canadians and the like. So the, the industrial base is actually heavily American um, or close allies. But where we've seen challenges are down, where the, and when the, where your point comes in, is down in the supply chain. Because there are a lot of commercial uh, things that, where there isn't enough demand um, from defense um, um, uh, purchasers to, to keep that capability here. And that's what's happened in microelectronics, that's what's happened in rare earths, uh, some of the chemicals uh, business, uh, as, as well as small UAVs. So some of these, through active mercantilist policies by the Chinese or just by the commercial forces, you know, there's just not the business case for, you know, um, uh, for some of the production in the U.S. So that's where, frankly, you have to make an security judgment um, that, you know, we can't let just market forces drive this. We have to get engaged to maintain this capability in some kind of way. And that's where industrial-based tools like the Defense Production Act come into play. Uh, and it's interesting to see that um, there's been a general trend of not of doing what we call industrial policy in the U.S., because you know we're a free market system, we don't need to, we don't do five-year plans in terms of like like the old Soviet Union used to do. Um, but it's actually come to the point where we actually do need industrial policy in certain areas, you know, because otherwise we're going to get our lunch eaten um, by by other states. Thank you. And I want to go back to that uh, as you were discussing the U.S.'s sort of distaste for industrial policy and. Uh, kind of tie it back to some of the historical background you gave in your paper, because I really thought that that historical context was helpful for understanding how we make policy today. Um, so you say in your essay, I love this quote, U.S. leaders believe that much like the perceived experience during World War II, the dynamic nature of the U.S. economic system and the strength of the overall industrial base would be able to respond to any national crisis. Was that perceived experience accurate in the case of World War II? And is it accurate today? Do you think that our economic system and our industrial base could respond to a major war? Or do we need industrial policy to prepare the defense industrial base? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. I do spend a lot of time um, looking at uh, World War I and World War II. And there's an interesting kind of um, historiography, you know, you know, as a PhD in history, I'm sorry, I'm going to use that word, but sort of different interpretations of the past, right? And in World War II, there's the view that, you know, it was all industry that did it. Um, and, you know, the, um, uh, through the dynamic investments and, and uh, you, know, uh, you know, the gumshoe efforts by entrepreneurs, uh, you know, that, that we led, that led to success. And the other view is that it was really the central planning 
by um, you know the uh, dollar year men you know that uh, really led to that success. And it's really what I've discovered is sort of it's in the middle, right? So you have to have um, uh, the the overwhelming focus of, of the U.S. has to be letting the market forces um, go because uh, that is where we are strongest. Um, but if you um, but if you do it without um, some level of industrial policy, you get a situation like we have today in microelectronics and, and, and other areas. So I think you need a little bit of both. Um, one of the interesting things, and this is not an ideological, well, it's, it, it's not a political comment, but you know, in general, you'll see democratic administrations because they favor government are more prone to government focused solutions right so um, like you see that president biden came in really wanted to use the most of the defense production act really kind of direct COVID response um and um whereas and likewise in world war ii there was a heavy there was that kind of that government involvement whereas under president trump it was less so it was more kind of let let's public private partnerships let's work together so you know there's um there's different ways to skin skin the cat. Uh, one thing I, I would love to say um, is that uh, you're seeing a lot of the emphasis um, on industrial base continuing today. Um, right before the end of the Trump administration, the Department of Defense put out their annual industrial capabilities report, uh, which um, I, I, I personally was involved in many of those uh, when I was um, in government. Uh, and that um, also kind of um, uh, that that uh, the the trends are very um, are very consistent across administrations, uh, and the challenges are too. So, but the, one of the good things I've noted um, in the the most recent National Defense Industrial uh, Authorization Act. Uh, hey, Maya, I think you're back. Good. Uh, one of the things I noticed in the National Defense Authorization Act that I think will help the industrial base overall is that the role of uh, industrial policy has now been elevated to the assistant secretary of defense level and what that does is it really helps um because a lot of these industrial matters the areas that i've mentioned uh, they're very important but they don't really have a natural champion um you know it's not something uh rare earths are in the microelectronics they're in radars but you know air force doesn't buy them air force buys finished products so it's so far down the supply chain that there it doesn't you know, it's it's important for the military departments, but it's not critical. So, so having an assistant secretary of defense allows, um, it gives a real champion to the real industrial-based matters that are important across the department. And this is important for internal Pentagon budgetary battles, as well as um, on the Hill with um, with dealing with uh, congressional staffs and members. Thanks, Jerry, and thanks for keeping things moving while I <laughs> disappeared for a moment. Happy to be back. Uh, yeah, returning to our questions here, uh, I think I'll ask one more of my own and then we'll turn it over to audience questions. I'm seeing a lot of really good ones in the chat box. Um, so I actually want to move away from your essay for a second and get more into your background. You served as the senior career official in the Office of Manufacturing and Industrial Based Policy, which is now just the Office of Industrial Policy, a little easier to say. Uh, but right at the time when defense industrial base issues were kind of making their way up the priority list in the Department of Defense. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you did in that role, uh, where your office saw successes, which areas you found most challenging, and what advice would you give to your successors in the Pentagon? Super, uh, really great question. So I think um, we we worked in um, sort of three three buckets, three lanes. 
Uh, one was around industrial assessments, where we looked at the defense industrial base and looked at sectors to see where there are weaknesses, where there are strengths. Um, and the second area was around uh, programs to mitigate those 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 um, those areas, such as the Defense Production Act, um, Title III, um, the in, Industrial Base Analysis and Statement Program, as well as at the time, manufacturing technology uh, and, and the like. So, so you had those programmatic efforts. And then the third piece was on sort of protection, which was on Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, where you're looking at foreign investment um, to make sure that you protect national security, as well as reviews of mergers and acquisitions to protect competition. So I think the greatest success that I saw during my time was in CFIUS. Um, there was a clear um, um, bipartisan, you know, very strong bipartisan consensus of the challenge um, facing um, uh, of foreign investment. Um, and particularly at the time I was in the seat, I mean, we were looking at 40% of the um, uh, transactions involving foreign company, foreign country, companies based in foreign countries doing mergers and acquisitions or uh, um, uh, joint ventures were from China. I mean, whereas prior to 2010, 90% of the um, um, uh, of the, these transactions originated in NATO countries or Japan, Australia, close allies. So these became much more complex and much more dangerous. So, um, and Congress uh, recognized this and they passed the uh, Foreign Investment uh, Risk Reduction Modernization Act or FIRMA um, in 2018. And that's really kind of, um, there's really again, bipartisan strong consensus on that. So I think we made a lot of progress there. Um, I think we made a lot of progress in getting the industrial authorities such as Defense Production Act Brady to do projects. Um, the challenge we had is, it, it goes back to my point about the, the elevation of the role to assistant secretary level. We had a lot of consensus that, hey, there's, and this was bipartisan, this was across the department, that here's some real challenges, but we could never get anyone to pony up, here's, I want to put this much money towards this, and the congressional appropriators were likewise not sympathetic. So, um, so these programs were chronically underfunded. And, I, and obviously that changed dramatically. COVID, where a billion dollars were put into EPA. So I'd like to see more of that happening across those programs, because they're real strong tools. Um, and then I think um, uh, in the assessments world, I think that's gone well. It, it just raised the, um, uh, the, the White House review back in 2017, what, 2018 on the defense industrial base, as well as more presently COVID, have really kind of elevated that. And that's really helped um, my old office. So I, but, and then I would focus, but my advice to them would be, you know, to recognize that, but also to pick your battles and focus, right? The, um, you can't do everything. There are, you're going to have lots of um, companies, you're going to have lots of um, folks come to lobby you in terms of, you know, say this program's most, this capability is most important on the defense industrial base. And, and there's a lot of truth there. I'm not, I'm not being critical, but you've got to set your priorities. And my argument is you want to, first of all, the first priority has got to be get out of China. Right. So anything having to do with China, if you don't have that on contract or in the queue for our, for acquisition competition, that needs to be done. Uh, and then start. You have to prioritize what's most important to you. Uh, and um, that's where, like, for the in the in the report that came out from the Trump administration, the investor capabilities report, they said microelectronics and shipbuilding. You know, the new team, they they probably would say the same on microelectronics. I doubt it on shipbuilding. So what are your priorities? And focus on those and and get. Um, uh, the investment to, to address them. Now, just one quick follow-up. In regards to getting out of China, uh, you talked about we have a lot of 
in general, good policy tools to respond to the uh, defense industrial base issues. But do we have the policy tools we need to get out of China? And if yes, what would that policy response look like? What are those tools? I think the principal tools are those industrial based kind of investment tools. You know, you have to identify where are we in uh, upside down with um, in China um, and then go after them. Um, you know, it's 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 delicate because we have a tremendous commercial relationship with China, and we, that needs to continue. But we have to make that conscious decision of what are those, and then get out of it. And that's the challenge with um, with um, uh, initiatives like Buy America. So Buy America is a very seductive way. Uh, it, 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 you know, who doesn't want to build America? Who doesn't want to create more domestic um, manufacturing capability? But Buy America doesn't really help in this. You know, it it, it essentially sets rules where you know we only buy build certain things in America, which are, there's goodness there. But we also have close allies. You know, why, why don't we do things with a little help from our friends? So it's just not the right tool. Um, I understand why it's attractive to um, members of Congress and 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 others. Um, but you can build good paid American jobs by you know creating capabilities that get us out of the China business. So let's focus on that first. Uh, and then, um, you know, hit the priorities uh, for the administration. Thanks. Okay, moving over to questions and answers from the audience. I have one from Scott Craig, retired Marine and defense contractor. He asks, how are we doing in the critical materials area, recognizing many of our foes may have a corner on some of those materials? Does it require us to shift some programs? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and I think it's it's an area where we've chronically known the challenge for a number for dec decades, but we're really only now tackling it. Um, we, like I've discussed, um, Rare Earths is an area where we've put, uh, they've done a number of projects through Title III and through IBAS to address the, the, the shortages there, build domestic capacity, but there's lots of other areas where that needs to happen. Um, and part of, it's, part of the answer to the materials problem is stockpiling. But you know, most of the challenges we've got with materials are, you know, they're they're mined in countries like Belarus, Russia, China, and the like. So we have to um, kind of address those. And fortunately, also we've got close allies that have strong mining capabilities, such as Australia and Canada. So there's, you know, there's right partnerships there as well. Sorting through all our questions, we have quite a few from the audience. I thank all you guys for enthusiasm. Awesome. Here's one from my colleague, Justin Rhee, uh, who works in our Asian Studies Center. As we are still addressing the 5G issue in the United States, there is now rising concern over Chinese developments into 6G. What do you believe would be the appropriate balance between supply chain security and forging ahead in technological innovation? Is there greater room for growth and DOD collaboration with our allies in facing these challenges together, especially in the tech sector? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think it's, it is an important point. Um, one of the things that uh, I think we have not done enough of is partnering with our close uh, allies on these on, on these kind of high tech matters. Because you know these um, these kind of uh, capabilities are made in Japan, uh, in Europe, um, and in our you know and these are our close allies. So I, we've got tools to address it. The challenge is we haven't really used them. So the National Technology Industrial Base, for instance, right, was done in the 2017 NDAA, and that created a vehicle for, it said that US, Canada, Australia, and the United Kingdom were all one industrial base. Okay, why don't we use that 
and put clauses in contracts or uh, contract opportunities that say companies based in these can also participate in this and uh, allows allows the best of the of our um, collective uh, minds to get into that. And so I think there are opportunities that even in the Defense Production Act you could do that. Um, so I think that that we need to do more of that going forward. And I think that's a real opportunity um, for the department. And we have a question here from Joe Mueller of BAE Systems. He asks, how would you recommend that the U.S. government and industry resolve the need for supply chain illumination of the supplier tiers with regards to balancing intellectual property rights, especially in this new era of the digital twin? All right, that, that is a, that, those are, it's a great question. I want to take them in two parts. So the first on supply chain and illumination. That is, it, it's not quite a unicorn, but it's the real, it is a real, real challenge for both government and industry. And there are a lot of supply chain tools. I mean, there's companies all over that have great analytic capabilities, but we still haven't really kind of addressed it. So the the, the uh, one of the ways which was recommended out of um, um, a project, which I'm blanking the name of, but um, uh, Deliver on Compromise, that's what it's called. It, um, that that um, um, study recommended, and I think this is a smart move, creating a third party that um, has um, is one that is able to track um, the industrial base from top to bottom. So that way you're not, it, it's someone that is a third party that's not government or industry. The challenge with that is that, you know, and this was written by an FFRDC, a think tank that would love to do that work. So it's a bit self-serving, um, but but I, I think the recommendation itself is, 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 is right on the mark. The question is, I mean, third party, I mean, my, that's really expensive. So you, you want to think about how can you do that, use that principle uh, through it, but using AI or some kind of technology way that you could have that independent um, uh, view of the uh, supply chain, um, but not kind of crossing the wires with government and industry, except as a challenge. On the, on the question of IP, um, IP is a something that um, I've seen from the, both the government and industry side. Um, in the government side, they generally don't think about it um, or they don't understand it well and so they don't know what to buy they don't know how much how much ip they need um and uh, whereas in industry they don't trust the government um so th there, there's been a lot of zero-sum discussion on intellectual property i think there were a lot there was a lot of progress made in the last administration by um the stand-up of the ip cadre as well as the work done by bruce jetty in the army uh, i think they're looking at ways of being more pro proactive about um ip collaboration and defining kind of in the government industry defining what government defining what they need up front and industry saying okay this is what um this is what this would look like and what it would cost if you want this so so i think that's the way i think forward for ip um it's not going to be easy uh, but i think that's the kind of approach we have to have thank you here's a question from john broderick who is a defense fellow in the senate uh, he says, hello, and thank you for this discussion today. I was curious if you had any thoughts on other nations' industrial policies, thinking maybe South Korea, for example, and if there are any policies from which we can learn uh, as far as opportunities or pitfalls. A great question. Um, and I think the question really um, goes back to the discussion we had earlier. Um, you know, other countries have very strong industrial policies. China has an explicit, you know, 2025 plan that says we want to go to this level in this area. Uh, likewise, I believe South Korea does um, uh, an industrial plan too, and other countries have. And they essentially have national champions um, 
so in their industries that they aggressively promote to help grow their sectors. And the U.S. has shied away from that because uh, we have so much industrial capacity. We don't want to pick winners. Um, there's been a reluctance to do that. So I think um, I think it is I think a great study to do would be to actually look at others' industrial policies and see what is most appropriate for um, the United States and our system. And I think something where something where we're sort of landing on right now is that we have to pick key industrial sectors that we have to have some industrial policy on and 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 but generally let the market kind of play. Thanks. And now here's a question from my intern, uh, Ryan Williams. And he asks, consolidation is a major trend in the defense industry over the past few decades. Um, and some in Congress have argued that the failures of small subcontractors often result in primes picking up their area of production or service, adding responsibility to the prime contractor's plate. Do you see this and call consolidation more generally as a trend? Uh, is that a problem for the defense industrial base? How can DOD with its partners prevent this while maintaining resilient supply chains? Mm -hmm. uh, great question. Uh, the yeah, consolidation is sort of a perennial challenge, not challenge, but perennial question of like how 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 much consolidation is uh, uh, too much. And in general, uh, in the law, you know, the anti-Sherman uh, antitrust, uh, the Sherman Antitrust Act, and now the Hartscott Regional. Uh, act um, is the lens through which we look at mergers and acquisitions, which means competition. We don't like monopolies. Um, and um, so the DOD view in general um, that working with the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission is that, um, you know, competition is good. Uh, and so the overriding concern is maintaining competition. So when we have consolidation uh, in services sector, uh, in general, DOD and the, doesn't really doesn't look at that with great concern because there's lots of competitors. The barriers to entry are very low, um, and so 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 amongst uh, service companies, it's not as big a deal. <laughs> um, among um, where they get concerned is on when you get the bigger acquisitions, when you have a merger of uh, you know a Lockheed and a Northrop Grumman, which was tried back in the in the 90s. That kind of consolidation essentially makes companies so big that you don't really have um, um, that you know you you lose the ability to have leverage as a government customer and you don't get the offerings you need. So there's sort of a general trend not permitting the big ones, but um, on a case by case basis in uh, the middle tiers or big companies buying uh, other ones. One of the interesting tests that you'll see this uh, this year is the um, the North the um, Lockheed Martin uh, or uh, Aerojet Rocketdyne merger, which was um, you know announced late last year and will be reviewed uh, this this year under the Biden administration. So that is essentially you you had two independent rocket producers back in 2015. That was AT or ATK and Aerojet Rocketdyne. Uh, Northrop Grumman bought um, Orbital ATK in 2018. That was the last big merger that I had under my tenure, and then. Now this one, Lockheed essentially has gotten their own rocket supplier. So the, what they're going to look at is does this does um, does this make Lockheed control too much of the rocket um, industry, or you know Lockheed's already said they're going to be a merchant supplier and let others do it uh, use their vehicles. Um, and I'd be surprised if the outcome is not the same as in the Northrop case. So in Northrop um, Orbital ATK, that was merger was only allowed under a consent decree, which required that. Um, and north of for 10 years, um, uh, guarantee being a merchant supplier for providers like Boeing or 
SpaceX or others that want to use their rocket systems. So I, I'd be surprised if there were no other, if the outcome were not the same. Right. Yeah. But in general, I think you know you see consolidation, but you know there's also a lot of vibrancy at the small level and particularly in the services where you see a lot of new entrants. So, but you've had two in the space business. You've got SpaceX and Blue, Blue Origin. So how do you get more of those? Uh, and how do you get companies, you know, like some of the new companies that are Silicon Valley based, how do you get them to scale, right? Um, and so that's been, the, the, the latter is more of a challenge, frankly, than, than, um, uh, than actually, no, they're both, they're both challenging. <laughs> Here's one question. Federal regulations allow purchase of foreign goods based on a price that is lower than U.S. made product. This has been a battle for decades. How do we resolve this issue when some foreign products are subsidized by their government, which is a huge disadvantage to U.S. manufacturers? And I think we see this particularly in our competition with China. Uh, so yeah, well, this is the big Boeing Airbus debate, right? So this is the big fight between Boeing and Airbus um, because Airbus is, you know, has got state ownership uh, among a number of the kind of the uh, major company, um, major stakeholders in that in that uh, that company. So. Um, you know, I, I think it, it, it's uh, it is a it is a challenge, and this is where you have to you know it, it, for the government side they've got to use some kind of cost realism or firm fixed price to um, allow them to compete on a more kind of uh, um, uh, on a on a level playing field. But it's hard to it's hard for the government to um, uh, you know some of this is subjective you know because I think the uh, foreign companies would argue that um, uh, some some provisions and tax incentives are the same um, are akin to um, what the government investment is in in foreign suppliers. Um, so I you know so it's not a, a core area of my expertise, but you know it, there there are two sides of the story, um, and I think it, it's not inexorable, but it's a really hard one, frankly, to um, to resolve. I want to be sure that uh, as we're getting closer to the end of our time, I want to make sure that I ask a question from Dakota Wood, who is the editor of our index. I think yeah, I will definitely he gets a chance to ask. Uh, so one of his questions, companies are very reluctant to make big capital investments in new production capabilities unless they know this business or sales will follow. The government is notorious for changing contracts or canceling them outright when funding changes from year to year. How does this affect assessments of our ability to quickly ramp up production if wartime surge is needed? Oh, I think it, it very much does. I mean, it, it is, um, you know, it, it is a real challenge. Uh, and this is where I think we have to do less of these um, ma massive winner-take-all um, programs that, that often crash and burn before they even get to the RFP, like Dakota implies, and do more of a smaller kind of uh, multi kind of platform kind of uh, solutions that allow numbers of companies to get engaged, lower risk, uh, de-risking upfront, um, and um, different acquisition approaches. Um, because what ultimately leads companies to invest are opportunities. And if there's, there's only one opportunity in the next five years, they're either going to go all in or they're going to go all out, right? And so, but if there's a, a, a number of different opportunities, it creates more business case for them uh, and greater opportunity to win. So you've discussed before uh, in our conversation that uh, supply chain visibility is kind of the unicorn. Uh, and it's something that is extremely challenging to get. And yet 
is vital to our defense industrial base policymaking. Um, what options are there to address this problem? Do policy tools exist for us to get supply chain visibility? Should uh, new technologies and data management be applied to this issue? How do we catch the unicorn, essentially? Uh, it's a great question. And I think, um, you know, when we were initially doing the, 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 um, uh, the, the whole government review of the defense industrial base under the Trump administration, we, we were trying to go out to industry to talk about, get their inputs on some of these uh, matters. And the, uh, it, it really became a challenge because they're like, you know, they essentially, they're concerned about releasing proprietary information and, and the like. So there's a real kind of government interest, but there's also a commercial interest, both in um, main, uh, maintaining and kind of visibility, but also maintaining um, op op opacity, you know, and not being, not being clear. So you've got to get it out of, um, I think, um, a, um, uh, uh, the hands of the government or industry, you know, uh, and and have some kind of data man data kind of approach of third party. Uh, this is what I was talking about, you know, this whole deliver on compromise idea, you know, where you have a you know supply chain analysis center um, that is run by a third party that would you know, but getting access to it would be. Um, by mutual agreement between company and government or something, you know, so it's got to be some kind of third party at, um, way to do it that is trusted by both government and industry. Um, and how do you, it's got to be, it's got to be a heavy technology solution because this, you know, because this could be incredibly, it's, it's going to be expensive, but it just could be incredibly uh, um, prohibitive in cost if, if it's not done smart. Uh, Dr. Megan, you cited in your paper uh, the famous quip that you go to war with the army you have, not the army you might want or wish to have at a later time. It seems the same holds true for the defense industrial base. To what extent is the current defense industrial base the one we need? And what are immediate steps, Congress, uh, the new Biden administration, and uh, DOD need to take to address the top security priorities of the United States? Are there and are there capabilities we need to let go of or diminish, and which ones and why? So a very very narrow question, of course. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> an easy one to finish uh, us off. I, I think I I guess it would sum up with kind of um, uh, I, my kind of thoughts for the the Biden administration and for those in you know in Congress as well is I, I sort of see this as a, a four part plan um, to uh, for our defense industrial base what I call kind of focused reshoring. So the first thing is you've got to get out of China business, okay? And and I don't think anyone disagrees with it, but that's got to be the number one priority for both public health, you know, the COVID kind of pharmaceutical production, all this stuff, as well as in defense, right? So that's got to be number one. Number two, you got to pick your battles and prioritize. And this is what, you know, the, the, the gentleman's alluding to in his question. Um, you know, it's up for the Biden administration to pick. Um, and, uh, you know, they, you can't do it all. So you have to focus and work with Congress uh, and make the case and, and do that. So, and the third is uh, you should use all the tools. Um, and like the tools I've mentioned, the DPA, IBAS, Mantech, some of these are used, some of them are, are you know, they've chronically had challenges um, prior, to, prior to COVID. I don't want to go back there. I mean, we need to make, and this is where the, the new ASD IP is going to help, I think. But Congress, you know, um, you know, ask the questions, really get a uh, hold of uh, DOD's feet to the fire. But 
it's that kind of using all the tools. And then the, the, the fourth and the final point is um, get, doing this with a little help from our friends. Uh, and this is where we've got partners and allies that are, you know, the Japanese are rare earth magnet kings, right? Let, let's partner with them on building some of that capacity here in the U.S. The Australians and Canadians, mind gurus. Let's go. We want to build rare earth capacity. Let's, let's work together with them on that. Um, and, you know, so there's natural partnerships with, you know, the, 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 the Israelis and the UK as well. So do that uh, and you're going to get more bang for your buck. Um, and, and, and it's, 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 let's not do Buy America. Because what Buy America does is Buy America is, like I said, uh, seductive, but it doesn't really, um, it doesn't focus on the real challenges facing us. It just creates like there was a recent amendment last year's amendment to the NDAA, which almost passed, would have created made required all uh, major defense programs to be 100% American um, by 2025 or something. Which you know what that? Why would we want to uh, not get the best from our allies, from companies based on our partner allied countries uh, as well as the U.S.? It creates more competition. Um, you know we've got to go to war together anyway, so. You know, so let's let's not a protectionist approach is not the right way, which is why I, I kind of argue for this sort of focused reshoring effort. Well, I think that's a great place to leave off our conversation. I'd great. like to thank our guest, Dr. Jerry McGinn, for sharing your time with us today. Great. It's a real pleasure. It's really great to be with you, Maya. Thanks very much. And to our audience, uh, I'd like to say please avail yourselves of the great resources from George Mason University's Center for Government Contracting. I know I'm very grateful for their informative research and I'm sure it'll be useful to you in your various lines of work. I wanna thank our audience for joining us today for this important conversation. Uh, please feel welcome to contact us using the information listed on your screen. Also, please check out our 2021 Index of US Military Strength, particularly Dr. McGinn's essay. Immediately following this event, you'll receive a survey that we hope you'll complete so that we can bring ideas that you care about to our heritage programming. To see any events we have coming up, check out heritage.org events. Again, thank you everyone. Have a great day.